I'm thinking that maybe this time I'm the one that's gonna run away from home for a change. There's a life out there somewhere. And I'm gonna have me a hunk of it. Don't, don't do this to Penny. Don't leave her like this. You can't leave your child. She deserves something better than me. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast that wouldn't be possible without delivery drivers. Think about it, Scott. These microphones, maybe not the computer that I'm working off of, that device that I bought and I don't know what it's called. It's a digital recorder. Yeah, so that all of those things were delivered. And I'm going to speak to the importance of that in the Triloquy today concerning something posted on Facebook by Anthony McGill, Principal Clarinet of the New York Philharmonic. Nothing bad. You know, this is not a, a drag. The, this is not the roast of Anthony McGill by any means. I'm, right. But, but we are going to talk on that topic a little bit. I'll save it uh, for there. Thank you for everyone uh, who has come back to the new listeners. Thank you so much for giving us a try. This is a podcast where we take so-called classical music and apply it to the world. Sometimes center it, sometimes ignore it, you know, whatever. So this is that. Opus 80. I was going to say, you've arrived at Opus 80. So nice job. Yeah. This 80th opus of Triloquy is made possible in part by the New England Conservatory Black Student Union. Um, David Norville, a previous Triloquy guest, was my liaison who set up a conversation, a presentation that I did, a 20-minute lecture, first and foremost, that was pre-recorded. 20 minutes a video is a big file. Do you know that, Scott? I do. I <laughs> it, do it, know that. It took. I have some pretty good internet. It took hours for me just to get that uploaded and ready, but it all worked out. I had a, I had a great time talking with the kids. You know, I am really uh, rooting. What do you say the kids are going to be all right? Mm-hmm. Before the thing started, they just had some music playing in the Zoom waiting room, and one of the tunes was. Lauren Hill's Lost Ones, you know, from the Miseducation. So I consider that from that album, maybe not one. They're all hits, but Lost Ones is one that I feel like you have to know Lauren Hill, at least know that album, to be able to sing along and be familiar. Every single one of those um kids was singing right along with that so the kids are going to be all right they, okay. they know their they know their contemporary black music history the past and so huge shout out to all the uh, kids over there all of the young adults over there at the new england conservatory especially folks at the black student union yeah the um the downbeat though was a real blast from the past for me though so in the downbeat, we heard Laverne Chip Fields, who in good times played Lynetta Gordon. So for folks who don't know, that scene is about Lynetta Gordon abandoning her daughter, Penny, who is played by Janet Jackson. We'll get into that a little bit. Just watch seeing that on TV, just have the TV on Saturday morning. It kind of inspired some of the things that I wanted to talk about today because I'm think I was thinking about it over the weekend uh one of which of course uh so when we think about abandonment I'm thinking about the Mandalorian spoiler alert there's something coming up in the second movement <laughs> so before we get to the second movement I hope that you have watched the Mandalorian pause this pause triloquy 
and go watch the finale of Mandalorian come back. We'll be here, okay? Also, when it comes to abandonment, I discovered for myself a song that I'm sure everyone listening to this knows already hurt by Nine Inch Nails. It was made famous in part by Johnny Cash, I understand. I'm going to talk a little bit. It was made famous by Trent Reznor. Right, right. Um, But so we'll get into that conversation. You have a side of the argument as someone coming in blank Mm. and fresh. Mm -hmm. It is obvious to me that Johnny Cash made the song more famous. Well, that's because that's the that's that's what you see. That's an opinion. Well, we'll get on that later. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, also on the abandonment topic, um, I'm going to briefly touch on um, black people abandoning all of our normal human abilities. Um, tomorrow on the 21st for the Negro Solstice. I can't so we're going to talk about that. I we're recording wait. this a day early, by the way, everybody, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a holiday week and all that. Uh, Scott, what music you want to talk about this week? Well, seeing as our guest is a bit of a cannabis, cannabis expert, I started to research the music of composers who freely, openly, and maybe even to a degree excessively used cannabis. So we're going to talk a little bit about Terry Riley uh, coming up as well, and uh, and, and a little opera yep, yep. Of, of a different kind. I di- and I didn't write opera of a different kind. I didn't mention the guest. Dr. Molly McCann, Dr. Molly, um, is at a really interesting intersection. So she works as a professional in cannabis research, specifically cannabis consumer research. We talk a bit about that. But she's also a scholar and an expert, I, I will say at least, on the piano music of Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel. And we'll talk a little bit about the use of uh, the, the name Fanny Hensel as well. So a jam-packed uh, opus here. Let's just go get it, get right in. So Scott, everything is racist in 2020, as some uh, people might complain, including the tune Jingle Bells. Have you ever heard that accusation? I haven't. But you see, the thing is, is that we're at the point now where you could tell me anything that I love or hold dear or remember from my childhood is based in some sort of privilege, supremacy or racism. And I'd just be like, all right. All right. All right. Well, let's start there. Yeah. The song Jingle Bells. Do you hold that dear to your heart? Is there some deep nostalgia for you connected to that tune? Just to grade school Christmas programs, you know, and, and I think maybe once or twice growing up, carolers came by and everybody knows that one, right? So if so. I tell you that the song Jingle Bells is rooted in racist, are you here dying on the hill of all oh, stop canceling Christmas and blah, blah, blah. Y'all are That's not to- Christmas. <laughs> oh, oh, really? It's it, it. It isn't Christmas itself. It's a it's a Christmas song. Sure. But you know, it it's it's more of a seasonal song if you think about it. So this story came across my eyes last week, and it's actually an old story. It's dated here, December 2017. The headline from The Guardian says, Is Jingle Bells racist? Despite backlash from the right, it's not black and white. So what? this article is about is about a writer whose name is Kina Hamill. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. K-Y-N-A, Kina Hamill. Shed light on some of the history behind that holiday tune that we all know and got all sorts of backlash, became a Fox News headline herself. But Mm -hmm. what I think is really interesting here is going back into the history of this tune that everyone knows, but so few of us may actually understand the history of. I'm going to read here from the article. It says, the song was written by 
James Pierpont, who badly needed work after failing at several other professional ventures. Pierpont capitalized on minstrel music and entered upon a so-called safe ground for satirizing black participation in northern winter activities. So basically from that little paragraph, James Pierpont, a mediocre white man who, according to this, badly needed work and couldn't do anything else. All he had to rely on was making fun of black people. So he wrote some songs about some Negroes having fun in the snow around wintertime. And apparently, Jingle Bells was one of them. Same thing with Mammy, wasn't it? The You know, it was a, a Jewish guy that wasn't cutting it on his... On his own race, so he had to go into blackface to make a make a buck. Look at what y'all do to us. I know <laughs> it's. I know that when you say y'all, you're not looping me into it. But man, when you look at me and say it, it sure does feel like it. We've dealt with taking. You know, I'm joking. <laughs> I do. We we've dealt with taking Christmas tunes off the roster before. Last year, if not a few years ago, there was a big baby. War it's on cold baby outside. It's cold outside. You know. I fully understand. At first, I will admit, at first I was like, for goodness sake, it's just a Christmas tune. But if you really listen to the lyrics, it does sound a little rapey, especially when she starts talking about what is in this drink. She should know everything. She should know exactly what's in that drink, you know, and not even to be jokey about it. I don't think we should take light out of language like that. So I signed on to getting that one off the radio. There's plenty of other Christmas tunes out there. If Jingle Bells is, indeed, as I'm reading here, rooted in minstrel shows and blackface, I don't want to sing it, and I don't want to hear nobody singing it at me. So, your bah humbug. Uh, I, I'm trying not to, and that's going to be my triloquy is okay trying not to well anyway so jingle bells are you ready to throw it away are you going to die on the hill to to preserve it are you okay with never singing it or playing it's fine it's fine no and and i and also i think you're going to have a hard time getting rid of that one seeing as how you know i i think i was in kindergarten when we sang that in the christmas program at school and we're going to have a problem with it because, you know, people in positions of power. But when I think about singing that tune as a little kid, I'm thinking back right now in my mind to my mom making a home video for my grandma for Christmas for the holidays. And jingle, we're singing Jingle Bells for Grandma. Little black kids singing a minstrel song that was originally written to make fun. That's, that's sick. That's crazy. And the way that the conditioning comes down, we're not even allowed to call out that history, acknowledge that history and act accordingly in the future when it comes to this holiday music? Well, no, because it ruins it for everybody else that isn't affected by it. And why would I give up? I am am being sarcastic. I'm being facetious. I'm giving you a go. Well, I'll post that article to the description. You can read it and uh, tear it apart yourself. Obviously, we aren't going to play any jingle bells here, but I thought it would be nice to play a little bit of the score to a film called Jingle Jangle. Every This is like one of the new black Christmas movies this year. I haven't watched it yet. I will watch it. But the score was done by uh, a man named John Debney. So here's a little bit of the score to Jingle Jangle to get us into our next accidental.
obviously that one gets a flat. All I want for Christmas is to acknowledge my accidentals. You know, I got, I got, I had to get out my bassoon last week. Um, and after spending, you know, an hour, a couple of hours recording this thing, I realized that I did not check my accidentals in the recording is an E natural where there should be an E flat. Um, if she calls me back to tell me to fix it, great. If not, you know, it is what it is. So checking our accident, that one gets a flat there. Right. <laughs> what, what you're you going to go hide under the bed if that's the case? <laughs> I'm, I'm all right. I'm Bury all right. your head. Um, I, I've been trying recently to bring in fun, positive things, as you know, and I wanted yep. to bring in uh, this week a little fun that you can have on your smartphone, on your tablet, on a computer. Nice little sharp here. Uh, yes, this is a sharp because Google is doing this experiment. Uh, let me see if... Uh, there we go. Okay, so I got to skip through this little tutorial. So just Google Blob Opera, and it comes right up. Basically, you got four blobs that are representing different vocal parts, and you can scroll up and down on your screen or use your mouse to go up and down in pitch. And if you go to the left, then their mouths are wide open. I don't know what vocal technique that's called. And if you go forward, then that's all who you know all their lips are. so i'm I, I did an experiment with this earlier and it'll work out so i just want to give you a little little example and and this mezzo man she can hold in there What do you think? You can record it, share it with your friends. They even do jingle bells. I think it's good. <laughs> I'm 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 trying to not roll my eyes and think about some good things here. So I think it's great for a kid to experiment with. What about the kid in you? I think it's great for a kid to experiment with and composition and voice leading and all that sort of thing for adults to play along with it. I th I think that's fun as well. What is almost wanting to irritate me is that one of y'all are going to write a concerto for the blob opera and that's going to be on the next music festival or something. Why There's don't, going to be a whole orchestra why don't and somebody you write up it? there with their phone. You write it. Because I have real work to do, okay? <laughs> if it gets played somewhere, kidding, kidding, would you be heard? Kidding. <laughs> no, and we would definitely talk about and it. We'll program it. We will program it with the cat concerto. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so of the blob opera, where can they find that? <laughs> <laughs> on the interwebs it's on the it's on the googles um yeah so here's some more of that blob opera here to transition us <laughs> i don't mean to be completely dismissive of the blob opera it is important to have some fun these days, especially during the holiday season when things should be lighter. But there was definitely an article that came out last week that had the arts community buzzing. I mean, my social media was definitely going. First and foremost, I want to shout out the writer of this, Elizabeth Nonamaker. We were colleagues at uh, USC. We went to school together, and I actually played on her composition recital um, uh, one of the things that she wrote was a duet for two bassoons. I think mm. it sounds really gnarly. Here, here's a little bit of, of that work by Elizabeth Nonamaker. Mm. 
And shout out to Remy Tagavi, who was playing with me there, a St. Paul native, actually. Not mm. only a St. Paul native, Scott, but a Matt Groveland native. So when I moved here to Minnesota, oh, right he hood. was talking to me about you know the streets he grew up on. But anyway, I wanted to uh, shout out Elizabeth Nonamaker as the author of this article. Um, this comes from the Baltimore Sun headline, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra's roster of 75 includes just one black musicians. Critics say BSO must do better. You don't fucking say scott the bso must do better <laughs> yeah do you remember us talking about the baltimore symphony before well it was way back in the first season yep. when you had cameron on from kinderloot right wasn't that the the opus that baltimore kind of got into the mix maybe mm-hmm. i don't remember who the guest was but we were talking about the fact that they were on strike this is pre-pandemic you right know, that they were on strike but this black hole, this whole black city y'all got, no black musicians, mm-hmm. no black music, no black staff, hardly. Where is the surprise? That was that was my take back then, and that's still my take now. Where was the surprise that y'all don't have the community support because y'all don't look like the community? Y'all don't engage the community. So now we have this article um, talking about they need to do better because they only have one black musician on stage who's tenured. Well, my answer is, of course. I, I don't think the article is completely useless. I think it's actually a great article in that it highlights Esther Mellon, a cellist who I would not have known otherwise. Uh, mm. She's a, a cellist, a joined the Baltimore Symphony back in 1977 is the only black musician there. So um, please read this article. You can get some of her uh, feedback and some of her thoughts, you know, it being difficult to be the only one. It says here, uh, I'm quoting her, it says, sometimes you wish there was someone to bounce things off of. Sometimes you think, was that really a racist thing that happened? Was that what I think it was? You know, Mm -hmm. so just being alone, and we talk about this all the time, but, you know, so I encourage you to go back and listen, um, or or rather read some of her things. But I wanted to uh, put folks on to some of the other things that (laughs) this article has out here. I'm reading, it says, and she, talking about... um, Miss Mellon, Mm -hmm. and she has seen a few other black musicians come and go at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, but not many. According to an analysis by the Baltimore Sun, in its 104-year history, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra has hired just six black instrumentalists for full-time positions, only four of whom have been awarded tenure. The Baltimore Symphony Orchestra was unable to confirm these numbers, citing difficulty accessing personnel records before 2012. Mm. There is a there's a lot of there are a lot of problems here. So let's let's rehash that last sentence again. The Baltimore Symphony Orchestra was an, unable to confirm these numbers, citing difficulty accessing personnel records before 2012. We didn't say 1912. We didn't say 1952. Not even 1990. They said 2012. They don't. They ha, they have difficulty accessing those records. How can we look to the future and change to the future if we don't even? have data and records of our immediate history of our contemporary history that was a part of my frustration and a lot of the frustration that i saw on the article surrounding um uh, rather frustrating surrounding this article now beyond that you know as i just read the group has been around the organization has been around for over a century 104 years and has given four musicians tenure Mm. baltimore is a mostly black city you understand that right i do and this is and this is and this is what it is so this is why yes 
is old news that the Baltimore Symphony and other groups need to do better. But when we have factoids like this, right, it's, it's like, news what to the some. Hell are y'all doing? It's news to some. Now, didn't this also come up? I think I'm also remembering around the blind audition process and the screens. That was a, a conversation in here as well. Yeah, and uh, Titus Underwood, you know, member of the Triloquy family, yep. is actually quoted as saying, "Well, I don't know. This isn't a quote, but it just says Titus Underwood, principal oboist of the Nashville Symphony Orchestra." believes fully blind auditions are more effective than quote mostly blind ones in eliminating racial bias and my my pushback there and this is something that we've talked about before again the screen but my pushback there is make it intentional make the hiring intentional we can talk about taking a chance on really doing totally blind auditions where you know nothing see nothing until the very end but a my problems with that is a it's not intentionally hiring black people. How? What's the word we were talking about over dinner? Not um, vowing to do better, but devotion. Devo- like uh, yeah, right. So if you're devoted to this work, DEI, whatever you want to call it, be devoted to it. Don't just roll the dice. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's that's item yeah. A. Item B. Playing behind that screen. I think the other argument is that playing behind that screen is so unlike the actual job. What's the point, Mm. you know, and I can't I'm not thinking of a comparison right now to radio, but I don't know. Just imagine getting on the radio and never having spoken into a microphone. No, no one hears what your voice sounds like through the microphones at that organization. That is just something that would not happen. Right. But orchestras are doing this in the name of so-called fairness. Take the screen. I've, I've said this once. I'll say it again. Take the screen down. And hire black people, especially in towns like Baltimore, where most of y'all are black. It In this article, it goes on to talk about how they have striven to um, uh, program more diverse, more black composers. I'm starting to get over that, too, as well, Scott, because who are they going to go to when they talk about black composers? But Chevalier de Saint-Georges and even on the contemporary scene, Jesse Montgomery, who we love, um, Samuel Coleridge Taylor. But there's still that lack of exploration. It's still that safety in that mm-hmm. so-called diversity of programming. So we don't want to we don't want to turn William Grant still into Beethoven, and in, in that all his stuff is getting played all the time. And the know? fact is that we never could in our lifetimes. But they would act like it. They would act like we're just. You know what I'm trying right. to say. We no, don't want to, yes, we don't want absolutely. to overplay the ones that we have. You know, the, when there's plenty of new stuff coming out, we know there's. And it was his birthday last week, and we didn't say nothing. Y'all said something for us. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So Baltimore Symphony, and you said you uh, shared a cab with the president, right? I did. Yeah, coming back from Sphinx. Had a great conversation. Nice guy. Um, it just happened to be that I got a ride in a normal time for a normal rate, and it seemed like all of a sudden like a, a surge rate uh, uh, took off right when he did you, needed it. Did you get his card? Mm-hmm. You should send him an email and say, so... What's next? What y'all gonna do? We wanna Love ask him. Triloquy. Wanna ask him on? <laughs> yeah, we'll ask him on. Yeah, that that would be fun. Oh, would you would you facilitate that for me? Maybe we can sure. set that up. Sure. Right. Well, I guess. Hang on, listeners. We might be hearing from the president. Uh, the the music I wanted to bring in in conjunction with this article is is actually um, not Western classical, but it's black classical. As as Nina Simone said, you know, she affirmed herself as a uh, as a, a performer of black classical music. One of my favorite tunes by her. I understand it's a cover of a tune called Baltimore. It has that Jamaican backbeat. I even have the vinyl 
out there. I love the tune so much. Huh. So here's a, a little bit of that to take us away from Baltimore. gave that one a natural because we've been here before, been here before. we know what it is you know so it's just here we are um my my final accidental i'm gonna give this a nice little sharp so scott um again as to, to everyone listening we're recording this a date we're recording this on sunday the 20th because uh, scott has some things going on uh tomorrow evening so scott it was nice knowing you in my regular human form once my superpowers take hold I, I can make no promises. Please, so. please tell me what this is all about, because <laughs> the story that I pulled up didn't have any details apart from you're getting superpowers. I'm, re- I'm reading here from TheRoot.com, <laughs> um, an article by Michael Harriet. Shout out to him. It says, an open letter to black people about your upcoming superpowers. So <laughs> uh, I'm reading from the top here. Dear prospective super Negroes, <laughs> by now you should have received your certified letter informing you that people of African descent will receive superpowers on December 21st when Jupiter and Saturn align for the first time in nearly 400 years. According to researchers at the University of Twitter, This will unlock the melanated magic in black people, granting them never-before-seen gifts beyond the ability to clap on beat and resist dumping artichokes into potato salad. Okay. Who does that? (laughs) So this is all in jokes. This isn't fun. But but the fact is Jupiter and Saturn will align in a way that hasn't happened in a long time. Right. What the actual... Just after sunset, you'll see them above the horizon. So what the actual science is saying is that there's going to be an increase of solar energy toward Earth or however the science is saying. And, um, of course, those of us who are melanated, who really, you know, who those of us whose skin is really activated in that way um, by the sun, apparently we're going to get superpowers. So this article kind of just, you know, in a very ingest way, <laughs> you know, again, something like for the holidays goes through the superpowers. Um, Scott, and I'll I, again, I'll leave this the article here for you to go through. It's a nice laugh. It's uh, nice and lighthearted. But Scott, what I wanted to ask you, so. When I uh, came to Minnesota and started my job at Minnesota Public Radio, I'll never forget one of the things that you laid out was, well, you know, this person on the team is really good at digital production. This per- I'm a really good writer. This person does this. Da, da, da. What's your superpower? Okay. So in or out, let's say outside of the context of this article, because it's all in jest, maybe we'll see if I have some, you know, if I can, if I can uh, feel the rain coming a day, a, a week ahead, you know, after this, <laughs> all these superpowers. But um, so with that to side and, and considered, I wonder what you think about that question. Now you were asking me what unique things do you bring to the team and ultimately the field, right? So mm-hmm. how would you answer that question now, knowing what you know now to what, two and a half years later, what would you say is, is, is my superpower? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me mine. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you what you thought, what power you thought you would get. <laughs> So go ahead and take that before I answer. Well, because of the confidence I have in my ability, especially over radio, public radio, to really get a point across to audience, 
say something sharp, say something that may be a little offensive to some or a little spicy, but say it in a way that someone can understand and take. It's not like they just can't take it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like maybe my superpower would be the ability to just convince, you know, or to, to talk folks into The persuader. Yes. Yes. I'm gonna go right to the bank. Um, I was, (laughs) uh, I was thinking that you would have some sort of impenetrable armor. Oh, because I know that you take a lot of DMs and a lot of emails and stuff that are filled with negativity and you still come back with the same sort of drive every week, which I think is a, a, an admirable superpower. It comes it, it comes from being black. You know, when they call on you an er, an E.R., you know, at age four and five and six, like I was hearing from where I came from, if someone writes you a little nasty email, get a life. All right. Maybe some sort of a knight then or a armadillo man. <laughs> armadillo, armadillo man. Okay. That doesn't sound sexy at all. It depends. What, hey, you can, you can, you can make it sexy. I have faith in you. Well, anyway, by the time you're listening to this, it will be Wednesday. So to the black people, I hope that you have used your powers for good. If you've used your powers for evil, that's fine as well. I'm not here to judge you and tell you what to do. So mine would be smelling really far. <laughs> but you're not black, so good thing you don't have to worry about this. Dogs, tomorrow. dogs look. <laughs> dogs look where I point. Right, that, that, that's your superpower. <laughs> you know, you're being so cohesive there, talking about uh, armadillo man. You know, impenetrable skin. Uh, one of the things that I want to talk about, we're going to talk about in the second movement, is the Mandalorian. But since we're talking about superpowers and planets aligning, I wanted to honor another black hero from a galaxy far, far away who was Lando Calrissian. So Dell and I, this has been like a Star Wars Christmas. We've gone through, obviously we've been watching The Mandalorian. We've watched all of the, uh, of the core nine movies except for episodes four and five. We did six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, plus Mandalorian, all that. So, Rogue One? Uh, not Rogue One yet, so we'll get to that as well. And these it. are rewatches, of course. Anyway, in going back... Uh, to the original uh, Triloquy 1, Trilogy, sorry, uh, (laughs) 4, 5, 6, and seeing uh, Billy D. Williams, Lando Calrissian, and then seeing him in episode 9, and then, you probably won't remember, but in the final scene, he uh, really affirms a black woman in a big way who was a stormtrooper all of her life, didn't know where she came from, and he's like, well, let's find out where you come from. So for some people, he may just be an extra character or nice to see. For me... It's very affirming to see. So we're going to transition out of this first movement and go into the second movement with Lando Calrissian's theme. Music here, of course, by John Williams. So we've transitioned there with music again from a galaxy far, far away. So, Scott, let's jump right in. And a reminder to the listeners, we're about to talk about The Mandalorian for just a couple minutes. So if you have not yet watched it, pause this and go watch it because it's a a phenomenal episode Mm -hmm. finale. What did you think, Scott? Well, first off, the series is everything I ever wanted out of Star Wars and never got. You know, because there's no angle for kids. It's adult Star Wars. 
you know. And more than just adult Star Wars, it's the lone wolf and his and his partner going through the universe. I mean, is is that not how you just see yourself? It is. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. The only thing is missing is Beskar armor. No, no, you're <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I think that the the finale of season two in particular brought out um, one of the things that the Mandalorian does for the entire canon, which is give you different perspectives because on the entire Star Wars universe. Sure. Yeah. Not just the show. You know. Right. Because you know. Um, the Mandalorian is uh, probably considered by most an outlaw, but yet he is the hero, um, very much like Boba Fett in this instance. You know, you're romanticizing or the, Boba the Hutt, Boba the now. Hutt, right? <laughs> um, but what really raised my eyebrows is when they had the uh, the two pilots at gunpoint, and he said that he was on the Death Star, you know, that uh, he knew people on the Death Star or he worked on no, the Death Star. who is he? You're talking about the Mandalorian? Well, no, one of the pilots that they, you know, that they have uh, at gunpoint, you know, they're trying to uh, In get... In the finale. Right, they're trying to get Grogu back. And, and he starts talking about the millions of people who died and that destroying Alderaan, Princess Leia's home planet, was a small price to pay to end, to rid the galaxy of terrorism. Okay, so it sort of turns it the other way where uh, the rebels are the bad guys. You yeah. know? So looking at it from that perspective, which I don't think that the casual Star Wars viewer does. You know, I think that that's fanboy territory there to start looking at all the different aspects. I'm not a bro, so I have my complaints about the Mandalorian, but I will say that in the finale, I think it was very striking for them to depict Luke Skywalker as this badass who don't have any problem with these dark stormtroopers, whatever y'all are on here having a fight. I, I'm just here for Grogu. Excuse me. You know, it, it just made it seem very easy. And what I, you know, immediately thought of was how a lot of people are going to think that come 2021, all of the drama of this year is going to be gone. Like the like New Year is like. Luke Skywalker wiping it all away. You mean that's it not going to be like that? It's not? It's not going to be like And we shouldn't even oh. joke because we are very much, there are thousands more people who are going to die from COVID. You know, mm-hmm. I just hope people are really taking um, all of this seriously. You know, uh, going back to the downbeat, when we're talking about the theme of abandonment and all that, of course, that was a major theme here in the finale to The Mandalorian as Mando and Grogu say, goodbye to each other i'm sure you got all in your feels there didn't you i did but it happened uh two episodes prior when he was going to hand grogu over to uh rosario dawson's character ashoka, ashoka. Mm-hmm. yeah um and you know he goes back ashoka. he he goes back oh, to the yeah. ship to pick grogu up and you think it's just going to be he scoops him up and goes back and no he probably sat there they just show him sitting there the two of them at the end of the bunk they probably sat there for two hours together not being able to say yeah. goodbye. That's the one that ripped me up. Well, anyway, this is not the Mandalorian podcast, but I just wanted to bring it up because I spent a lot of time listening to, humming, and singing in the shower, stuck in my head, the main theme from mm-hmm. The Mandalorian, written by uh, Ludwig Gorenson, the composer behind uh, Black Panther. He's worked with um, Donald Glover, on, I think he produced This Is America, and of course mm. Donald Glover is going to be the young uh, was was already the young Lando, and there's going to be a new show about so all sorts of connections and and networking there. Shout out to Ludwig Göransson, Scott. You know how I am. I don't give a lot of barbecue bar- invites. Uh, yeah, cookout invites, mm-hmm. but. 
He gets one because right. the way those the way those the way the recorder ensemble is just seasoned. You can tell that Ludwig Göransson has been at a spades table just from the syncopation he uses in those recorders. Shout out to Ludwig Göransson. Here's a little bit of the Mandalorian theme song. Before we completely leave the theme of abandonment, I wanted to quickly mention that I discovered for myself a song that I know all of y'all know, Scott, surely you know it, the song Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. We talked about it in the introduction, sort of the uh, drama surround, not the drama, but the conversation surrounding the, the most famous cover of that song. I think that's safe to say, right? The Johnny Cash is the most famous cover sure. of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. Dell and I were talking about famous uh, cover songs, of course, uh, the Lauryn Hill Killing Me Softly makes it through and, and all sorts of stuff. On this list that we got to on YouTube was Hurt and it showed Johnny Cash's performance. I didn't know this song. I was drawn to the lyrics. After listening to the original, I realized that I had heard it before on Rick and Morty. Mm -hmm. um, but Again, the the reason why it really struck a chord with me, watching that episode of Good Times for the first time, thinking about the Mandalorian, the Mando and Grogu, and then hearing the lyrics. I've, I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but uh, Trent Reznor sings something along the lines of "In the, everyone leaves in the end. Mm -hmm. You know, what, got, what I got in my feelings about was being the person that leaves. I'm on my, St. Paul is what, my seventh or eighth city. I feel like that person is in every city that I used to live in. That person singing the lyrics, you know, in the end, everyone leaves. So I, you know, and, and forgive sure. me, it's still a relatively new song for me. Um, but I think the spirit of it comes through most beautifully when with Trip Reznor singing it and sitting at the piano. Now, what I talked about with Dell was that for many people, when Johnny Cash covered it, they acted like it should have been his song in the first place. Like he did such a great job. Mm -hmm. You say you have an outlier opinion. There. I do because I don't really like that finale um, uh, album by Johnny Cash, the one where he did all the covers. I don't, I'm sorry. Um, I think his voice sounds shaky and thin and um, I, I, it's not a good look on him. I know that some people think that that plays into a lot of the covers that he did. Uh, Personal Jesus is on there as well by Depeche Mode. Um, for me, uh, it's Trent and the piano, just like you said. You know, um, all the angst is there, all the uh, all the emotion. It's raw and on full display. I appreciate Johnny Cash's rendition because there is a wiseness to it, a retrospection to it understanding everything that Johnny Cash did and went through his life to hear him sing some of those lyrics 
definitely hits a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I, I so I'm not saying that that's not an incredible rendition of that song because again as someone who doesn't have the familiarity with it i can say that i love it it's great mm-hmm. the johnny cash version trent reznor at the piano for me like as you've said really pulls out the spirit of it mm-hmm. so i just wanted to quickly mention that i didn't know the song i don't know who else might not know the song so here's a little um excerpt um from and i'll link it in the description but this is trent reznor the piano singing a little bit of hurt We've been talking scott already a little longer than i had planned we I say wanted, that every week i know i wanted to talk a little bit about some of the music that i had planned for the kwanzaa special that several radio stations have picked up um i'll i'll, I'll just say um my favorite tune from the from the program that I, the hour-long program i put together is a, a work uh a, like I, I call it a co-composition it's a work by afro-cuban composer mongo santa maria an arrangement for wind quintet by valerie coleman it's called afro blue Go look it up if you never heard that before, or you can listen to it live in the show that I call The Sounds of Kwanzaa. I just want to quickly thank all the stations that have uh, picked it up. If you want to hear so-called classical music in a Kwanzaa setting, I really encourage you to uh, check out one of those. I'll have show times and all that listed on the Triloquy website. I think I put some uh, nice uh, music together there. So if you can, um, be sure to uh, check it out. This is our last opus before the year in review, so, you know, got to get some of the holiday announcement sort of stuff in there but i wanted to make sure that uh we got to some of the music that uh you wanted to talk about this week well in preparation of talking with dr molly mccann uh on the topic of cannabis and classical music and the other places that it touches i started to look for composers who were into cannabis and obviously the one that comes to mind first off is Terry Riley. And I got to listening. Um, I, I probably go and listen to his piece in C three times a year. But I did hear it performed by the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. I was I looked online and I tried to find the percussionist that played vibraphone, black man that I don't remember his name. And he was rock solid. He didn't, because, you know, in C is like 12 minutes of the vibraphone is just going ding, 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 mm-hmm. ding, 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 ding. He did not fall off that entire live performance, so props to that. And it's one of those pieces that I only listen to a couple times a year. Uh, I went on from that to his uh, Rainbow and Curved Air, which is organ-based, and and that was kind of cool. And then again, after a few minutes, it was like, ah, this is like Super Mario Brothers on steroids. Strangely, that the next one in the queue comes up was Francesco M. Parizzo. Did you know that he also wrote, uh, you know, just sort of songs for chamber, well, uh, uh, duets? Okay. Uh, it's a guitar and violin duet that if I didn't know better, I would say it was maybe a student of Boccherini or 
you know, one of those uh, Catalan or Spanish composers of guitar. As you have uh, uh, hinted us to a couple times today's guest is Dr. Molly McCann, a specialist in cannabis research and in the music of Fandy, Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel. Uh, the big reason I wanted uh, Dr. Molly to come on, I'm so grateful that uh, she came on, was the normalization of cannabis. You know, we're talking about the holiday season and trees. Well, it's okay to talk about a different sorts of trees, isn't it? You know, smoking a different kind of tree. I think there is an opportunity for so-called classical music, the classical music institutions. If there is some real um, embracing of the idea of joining those two worlds, I think there could be a new audience, there could be new money made, and there mm-hmm. could be new opportunity for, for so many different things. There are. Uh, uh, so the three of us, me, Scott, and Dr. Molly, uh, had a conversation You know where we talk about um, what she has learned in her work. We talk a bit about cannabis use in the concert hall. Uh, but Dr. Molly is also um, a really brilliant pianist who has spent a lot of time studying the music of uh, Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel, specifically one called Das Jahr. It's a 12 movement work, piano pieces, each one dedicated to a different month of the year. So uh, we'll transition into um, our conversation. Let's say with the we're not going to do the January or December because we talk about those in the conversation. We're going to uh, jump over to August. I think the August movement will be a great way to transition. We um, begin. The first thing I asked Dr. Molly McCann, who has an EDD, about some of the conversations surrounding Dr. Jill Biden. I'm sure you're uh, familiar with that, Scott, how, mm-hmm. you know, how some men can be so ignorant. So I just wanted to make sure, you know, getting the opportunity to talk with someone who has earned a doctorate, specifically a woman who has earned a doctorate, to get her take on on a bit of that it's not directly related to the conversation but i feel like i would be remiss if i didn't ask so here um is the august movement of dasyar by fanny mendelson hensel and here's our conversation with dr molly mccann My first reaction was that, I mean, this is familiar, right? This is insecure dudes who don't have anything better to do are, this is, you know, picking on women um, who are better educated is kind of, it's not surprising to me. I've seen it a lot. Um, I, the thing that I felt most was just embarrassment for that dude who put himself out there like that. (laughs) Like what, like what an asshole. Like, and he had to, I don't know. I think he got the response was appropriate, but also like doctor is an, it's like an honorific, right? It's not, you're not going around telling people I am a doctor, right? It's just uh-huh. something that goes in front of your name and, you know, in recognition of the work that you've done. And to be clear, like you don't need to be especially smart to get a doctorate. Having a doctorate <laughs> doesn't make you a smart person. Um, but it, you know, it 
to me, it's a matter of respect for something that you've achieved. Um, so yeah, I thought that that whole thing was pretty silly. I am happy though, because <clears throat> until recently, no one knew what an EDD was until uh, Jill Biden, you know, she has her EDD. So now people know what my degree is. So I can be like, yeah, I have an EDD like Jill Biden. <laughs> and people. So, know for the folks who, so for the folks who don't know, what, what is an EDD? Uh, it's a doctorate of education. So it's usually um, principals, superintendents, if they have advanced degrees, that's what they have. The program that I did was a lot more um, progressive and kind of um, we defined education much more broadly. So most of the people in my cohort were working for um, nonprofit organizations um, and you know just doing their own uh, community work. Um, so we we defined justice or social justice and education as um, just a part of everyday life and where you can show up anywhere, not specifically in a in a formal school. Yeah, and we're going to get into uh, the very unique work uh, you do. But I wanted to start uh, with uh, a Mendelssohn, a, a Hensel question. Well, first and foremost, you know, I always say Fanny Mendelssohn. I noticed that you're very intentional about uh, the use of the name Hensel. Is there anything behind that? Um, I think this, the simplest answer is that that was her name. Um, that mm -hmm. was the name that she went by when she did later in her life publish things. She published it with the name Hensel um, when she kind of semi-publicly appeared as a performer, which only happened a couple of times. Um, she used the equivalent of Mrs. Hensel or Mrs. H to try to remain more anonymous because it wasn't mm. appropriate for her as a wealthy woman to be you know, doing music publicly like that. Um, so it was the name that she used. Uh, and I, you know, I had my own kind of evolution around the use of maiden names versus married names. Um, mm -hmm. I'm married and I kept my maiden name. My, my mother is still married to my father and she uses her maiden name. Um, my mother-in-law actually also uses her maiden name. So it's kind of just a cultural thing. Um, and if I'm being honest, I had you know really strongly held and kind of ill-informed opinions about the value of maintaining your maiden name versus adopting, um, you know, it, everyone should be able to choose what name they use for themselves. And mm -hmm. I, you know, had that evolution uh, a little bit later, maybe than I should have in my life. Um, but uh, so, it, it, yeah, in terms of the comparison to her brother, right, that's why a lot of people use Fanny Mendelssohn, because, every, you know, more people know Felix Mendelssohn. And mm -hmm. I do sometimes strategically use Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel, depending on the context, because I do think that sometimes it will help people listen a little bit more if they have something that it's connected to. Um, but uh, the other thing I wanted to celebrate was that uh, Fanny had an amazing relationship with her husband, Wilhelm Hensel. Um, it's, I really think, a, a wonderful example of the kind of supportive relationships that you know I I appreciate in the world and I think that we should normalize more he was super supportive he was a visual artist and a poet and she set several of his poems to song um, they collaborated on publications where you know she would have her manuscripts and he would illustrate the manuscripts um, they would select uh, poetry selections together to to put all of these works together so I just think it's a brilliant a, an aspirational example of what a uh, supportive relationship would look like. So I wanted to honor that and to honor her use of her name, Hansel. 
Yeah, that's a really good point because Scott, I, I I don't think I've ever told listeners or anyone about Wilhelm Hensel. I think that name has never even come out of my mouth. So it is it is great to you know hear about that research uh, that uh, that relationship, that very supportive relationship, and uh, also just contextualizing it all, um, not centering Wilhelm, but but centering Fanny. I think we definitely uh, need to do more of that. Uh, you, not you, one time have ahead. I said that. Not one time have I said that name, and also. I've been trying to fix my approach to it so that I'm not hanging Fanny Mendelssohn's reputation on her brother. Right. You know, I'm trying to put her work out in front and, you know, mentioning that they're siblings, that's fine, but I kind of leave it at that. But there's always the fun way to do it, because when I talk about uh, Fandy Mendelssohn's music uh, on the radio, I'm always like, and you know what? Half of the stuff that Felix wrote was probably written by Fanny. You know, <laughs> right, folks, right, right. folks get a, folks get a, a kick out of, out of that sort of thing. Uh, you know, one of the um, pieces, or I guess the specific piece, uh, Dr. Molly, that uh, you have spent so much time with is one by uh, Fanny Hensel, um, Das Jahr. And I, I did take the time to, you know, listen through um, these months. I actually started started with December because we're in December mm -hmm. and I went around that way. I thought it was funny that the January movement starts sort of menacing, like the, the beginning of the year, you know, with this dark, like who who knows what's around the corner feel. And it, and it seems like we actually <laughs> lived that. I mean, have, have, you, have you drawn many co comparisons between your 2020 and this piece of music that lays out the spirit of 12 months of the year? Yeah, I mean, it's been impossible not to like I, you know, I started this project um, in November, I, I decided to do this in November of last year. So just over a year ago, and, you know, I had no, no one saw 2020 coming. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I had it to work on, right? Like, I think, um, with too much free time this year, I think I could have gone to a lot of different places. And I really just doubled down on this project. It was something that I did kind of, um, you know, maybe 30 minutes a day, or maybe, you know, an hour and a half, a couple times a week. And then I turned this into like a part-time job basically. And uh, it was, you know, the, the work is so complex and, um, you know, technically challenging to play, um, but just there's so much there. There's so much expression. It's so vivid. Um, for me, it paints a really clear picture. And um, I also, I think, honestly, what got me was the beginning of January, too, because it does not start out in a way that you would expect. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what I expected, but it, it's uh, the subtitle for January is a dream. And it sounds kind of like this. Um, you know, frozen, you know, it sounds very much like winter to me. There are these mm -hmm. um, descending uh, octaves that have this kind of almost frozen feeling to it, like, you know, trudging through and then these very crisp chords in the right hand that come in and it just sounds like icicles to me. Um, so I, I just, you know, and I, I experience that every month as, as I was going through, I, you know, would turn, a month would start and I would turn to that month and kind of go through and experience, um, you know, try to imagine what she was drawing from, um, which I can only do in a limited sense because she wrote this in 1841 and, you know, I, I don't know, I've read books about her, but I don't really know too much about, you know, where she was at when she was writing this. So, um, yeah, I read a lot into it myself for sure. Um, and interestingly enough, 
I don't know if, if this is a coincidence or not, but March um, was the biggest disaster of all of the months that I was playing. And I suspect that um, that had to do with everything that was going on in March. Um, so it, it has been interesting to reflect just as I listen back to, I've been um, recording each month as I go through recording my, myself um, playing these pieces and going back and listening to them. Um, I've, it's interesting now that I can see kind of the end of the arc um, to reflect on, on how it's been. And uh, I could tell that I, you know, I, also I started getting better at recording it. Um, I initially mm -hmm. started this project um, to play it in, you know, physical get togethers that I would do every month with my friends. We'd have a potluck and a recital and get together. And um, I did that for January and February. And then for March, we had to cancel and we moved it on to Zoom. So once we did that, I started focusing more on, you know, recording the works and um, performing them over Zoom, which is a very different format. So it's just been interesting mm -hmm. to, um, to have to adapt with this year, but still to maintain this project at the same time. I think it's really important to note that these aren't kitty pieces. I mean, th these are real <laughs> compositions that take a, a lot of work. What, what's your, um, do you have a, a formal background in, in piano to be able to even approach these pieces? Um, so, I mean, I played piano since I was six or seven years old. I played it really seriously through high school. Um, I, in, in high school, I started doing some arranging, orchestration, composition. I studied a little bit of a few other instruments. I wanted to be a conductor when I was 16, mm. 17 years old. Um, I, so I, I was really serious about music. Um, uh, I, I didn't ever, I didn't go to a conservatory. I didn't do like the really formal music training, but I studied piano with, um, you know, just several piano teachers in my neighborhood the entire time I was growing up. And I took it really seriously. Um, and then I took a break uh, for about 10 years after high school. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think I had a lot of internalized, um, I, I couldn't put my finger on it then, but I think I had a lot of shame about not continuing with music and not like living up to whatever expectations people had of me or I had of myself around music. Um, and, and a lot of performance anxiety. And I think that I didn't know how to deal with any of that when I was 19 years old. And um, took a break. And then it was actually um, Felix's music. I've always loved Felix's music. And I came back to music um, a few years ago um, because of Felix's music. Actually, I had a particularly beautiful and healing experience with MDMA one day. And then the next morning came back to uh, listen to Felix's complete songs without words. And that, that was just a, a turning point in my music. And I came to accept a lot more about um, my history with music, my experience with the piano and uh, recognizing that like, I don't need to be perfect. I don't need to make this my professional life. This can still be an important part of who I am and what I do. You hear that, Scott? It doesn't have to be perfect. I'm thinking about you right now when it comes to your guitar playing. <laughs> of course. And actually, I wanted to ask you about that, too, because uh, you mentioned having people over for food and music, sort of a Shabertiad. And for years, I had a buddy come over every Wednesday night. We'd have dinner. Then we'd go down to the basement with other accoutrements and our guitars. And since that has fallen off with the coronavirus, I noticed my technique has as well. And you said that you had a break from your instrument for a while. And 
can you talk about your method of getting back into the the swing of things? You know, how did you shake off the rust? Um, it it took a while, um, and I think the most important thing for me personally was just developing new ways to practice. I think that I had always, um, in going along with the perfectionism, and by the way, I'm not over my perfectionism. I still struggle with it every single time, every single day. Um, But I know, at least now I know that, uh, you know, where that it's not the, the most important thing. But, you know, I think I had really specific ideas about how I should be practicing. And, um, the, the freedom to, you know, remove any um, expectations about what I was supposed to be really allowed me the freedom to do different things to practice and to um, maybe the biggest thing for me was to stop focusing so much on the technical aspects of it and to really mm-hmm. focus on the musicality of it and um, the interpretation of it, because that's what motivates me, right? I think that I got too bogged down back in the day with the technical aspect of things and didn't really find the part of it that I loved. Yeah. You know, that's so important for musicians to understand because my development was kind of opposite. My first teacher was very much about the music of it all and really squeezed something out of this. When I went on to grad school, I could play very musically. The spirit of it all was there, but my teacher was always like, okay, but you missed the F sharp though. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I think, you know, what what you're speaking about, you know, that balance is is so, uh, so important. And you know what, Scott, what helps me get there is a little help from um, our, our little green friend. I think I would like to <laughs> transition to, to talk about uh, that a little bit. So um, Dr. Molly, first and foremost, you know, you, you talked about um, a shame, maybe, maybe I, you didn't use the word shame, but just feeling guilty about not continuing in the music. Um, there seems to be a guilt or a shame, if I can use that word, about speaking up for cannabis, speaking up as um, a cannabis user. I wonder if you could um, speak to that as a professional in the field. I mean, do, do you ever feel awkward affirming cannabis in certain spaces, maybe musical, classical music spaces? So I don't. But that has everything to do with my context. Um, I mm. live in the Bay Area. I live in Oakland. And the, the attitude around cannabis here is very different from everywhere in the country, everywhere else, especially everywhere else in California, even. I grew up in Southern California. Mm. It's an entirely different planet here uh, around cannabis and attitudes towards cannabis. Um, also, being in the industry, especially when I first um, started getting involved in the industry, which was maybe like 2012 was the first time I did any of that, which was, you know, that was an entirely different world than it is now. Um, Mm -hmm. And the people in cannabis in Oakland in 2012 were the most accepting, eccentric, just, I was, I was enchanted with how earnest and authentic and themselves everybody was um Mm -hmm. you know you go around and all of these other kind of professional contexts and people are trying you know for good reason often trying really hard to present some image or um some sense of of who they think they should be and i didn't get any of that back in the time and i think that's when i was like this is what i want to do this is who i want to be with um this is what you know this is what i've been looking for um and the, the culture has changed and is changing a lot right now, especially as there's so much more interest in cannabis. Um, and, and I don't want to downplay the stigma because the stigma still really exists, especially in mm-hmm. certain places. Um, I don't 
right now I don't exist in any classical music spaces. So, I mean, I, I, you know, used to go to concerts back when we were able to do that pretty regularly, but um, you know, I understand that that's a very traditional, um, you know, conservative in terms of uh, ways of being and, and presenting yourself. I think it's a world where it makes it hard for people, especially for certain people, right? Um, you, you don't want to, you know, outing yourself can have real negative consequences for a lot of people still. And it, that's, it's important to say that that's rapidly going away. Um, it, it really in the last 10 or 15 years, especially attitudes across the board around cannabis have changed. I mean, it's one of the fastest changing social issues um, in the world and especially in this country, but it still exists. Um, and so I think what I want to say to that, to people who are listening, who might not be comfortable sharing, of course, you know, use your judgment about who you want to disclose that to. But um, the best guesses are that somewhere around half of American adults have tried cannabis. So it's not an unusual thing, right? And there's somewhere around a third, roughly, use it on a semi-regular basis um, or have used it at least once a year, right? So it, this is a normal thing to do and you shouldn't feel shame around it. And um, I think that pretty soon here, uh, everyone is gonna feel a lot more comfortable talking about it. We've talked about it a lot, Scott, the stigma versus normalization. I, I will walk down the street with a joint and not think about it twice. But, Scott, you know, you, you don't you don't have that level of, uh, of liberation because <laughs> because I'm coming at it. I'm coming at it from my late 80s perspective growing up in the conservative Midwest where you had to keep your shit hid and you had and you could not be smelling of it. Um, and also we had a program for uh, underage offenders, you either went to juvenile jail or you went into a treatment program. Mm -hmm. One of the two, that was your option. And so obviously everybody takes treatment and now that's on the record, mm -hmm. right? So nobody wants that. And so, yeah, it's really difficult. Like when we were in Detroit, I saw a guy walk in with a handful of cones and I'm going, dude, 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 there's a cop right <laughs> over there. You know, and it's legal. And a really so, important yeah, point, though, about, about that idea that, um, you know, you can either go to jail or go to treatment. It's mm -hmm. important to recognize how prohibitionists use that um, to imply that that consuming cannabis is problematic. They say, well, look at all of these people who are in treatment, right? They, they go to exactly. drug rehabilitation for cannabis. And it's like, that's because it's a better alternative than going to fucking jail. Like that's, that's right. So, so it's, it's important to understand all of the dynamics that are going on here. It's yeah. I'll leave it at that. Uh, also um, once I said to my dad, I was, I would love to go and live in Colorado, you know, mainly because I love the mountains, but he went immediately went to the legal weed thing. He says, Oh yeah, you'd like that. Huh? And I said, talk to me when drug testing ends. Where, where are we with drug testing in states where cannabis is legal? Um, it varies. Uh, it varies a lot. The federal government uh, still does it for their employees. They, they made it really clear that they're not going to stop doing it. They even went as far to say that they don't allow, they don't want their um, federal employees to be using CBD, uh, mm. which I, I, I don't know. It's, th this is something that, the idea of um, job protections and, and testing uh, for cannabis is 
becoming more of a conversation and is something that's starting to be considered more in legislation uh, as a part of other legalization um, and initiatives, but it's still, it's still lagging behind, to be honest. You know, you, t you mentioned uh, growing up in Southern California. Um, I, I went to USC, so I spent a lot of time down in, in Southern California. And, you know, when I was there, the attitude around medical cannabis was sort of a joke. It was like, oh, my my hand is kind of hurting from from playing B flat too long on bassoon. Let me go get a card. And it was it was always very <laughs> easy. But to me, that 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 framed the whole conversation around cannabis. Um, as being a medical thing and sort of demonizing still the recreational use of cannabis. I understand personally the medical benefits of it. You know, sometimes with my stomach issues, smoking a joint is the only thing that's going to get it together. Mm -hmm. I also very much enjoy and affirm the recreational use of the medicine. I wonder if, if your research or, or your work has, um, uh, has has drawn any interesting correlations um, at that intersection, you know, the uh, affirming the medical use versus affirming the recreational use. Yeah, I mean, both are, you know, most, the, the slight majority of people, if you ask them, do you use cannabis primarily medically or primarily recreationally, it's about a third, say medically, and about two thirds, say recreationally. Medical okay. users are more frequent consumers. Usually that's because, you know, they're treating some ongoing condition. Um, I also have had a lot of stomach problems and cannabis was one of the things that reliably made me feel better when nothing else did. And, you know, if you've had that experience where you're in pain or discomfort and something finally gives you relief, like that's how a lot of people come on board and start supporting medical cannabis because either they themselves or someone they know has had that experience and they know how, um, life-changing it can be. Um, so another thing about consumers who are either um, medical or recreational, the majority of them say that they do both, right? And those are very different kinds of uses. So if, if there's maybe among 10 consumers, one will say, I use it only medically and not recreationally at all. Um, and then maybe another, you know, two or so will say, I use it mostly medically, but somewhat recre or, but, you know, also recreationally at times. And then the recreationally people are, are split pretty much. So about half of them say, I use it for both. And a half of them say, no, I only use it recreationally. So it fits into different people's lives in, in different ways, right? People tailor it to what they're needing at any moment. Um, and also this speaks to kind of the our society's way of understanding um, our physical condition, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if it, in a lot of cultures, for example, there's not a difference between using something to feel good recreationally and using something to feel better medically, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a false dichotomy. Um, in the larger sense, right? If you're doing something to to feel better, right? A lot of the people who say they use cannabis recreationally are saying the reason they do it is to relax or to relieve stress. And, you know, that's kind of medical too, right? There, mm -hmm. There's a medical oh, application there. So um, it's, it's a complicated, you know, it's not just a simple um, you know, medical or recreational um, divide, I guess. Yeah. Oh, you, you mentioned that you had sort of a, a breakthrough with MDMA when you came back to the Songs Without Words by Mendelssohn. Mm -hmm. um, have you experienced that with cannabis and classical? And if so, 
how does cannabis meet your music? Um, I don't think I've, I don't think I've had that in the same, I mean, that, that was a one, just, I can point to that day and say that something changed mm-hmm. this day. I don't think mm-hmm. that I ever had any one moment like that with cannabis. Um, I think that it's just an ongoing, you know, when I use cannabis regularly, usually like in the evening at the end of the day, I think that what it does for me and the way that it's connected to music is, is it kind of lets me not turn off my brain, but like unwind my brain and like really explore and get, get some perspective on like, here are the things that I'm thinking and feeling and like, what does that mean? And just kind of put everything in context a little bit. It makes any anxiety or frustration or stress, um, you know, it, I'm able to look at it and say, oh, that's interesting. Instead of being in it and kind of consumed by right. it. Um, and you know, so of course for me personally, that has to do with music. And as I already mentioned, my, you know, high levels of stress that I put on myself about music, um, and also just, just to enjoy it. I mean, I think that it's, it's incredibly common. A lot of people that we talk to, a lot of consumers say that one of their favorite things to do is to listen to music while they're consuming. And, you know, to tie that back around, I have found that when I use cannabis and I play the piano or I sit at the keyboard, I'm thinking less about that technique that we spend so much time worrying about. And I'm spending more time thinking about the spirit of it all, thinking about the music. Now, of course, that requires the technical foundation. I can't go play or learn a new piece of music if I don't have the actual notes under my fingers. But I know exactly what you mean when it, you know, I think about it as making my mind more porous. So Mm -hmm. when I listen to the music, I'm understanding more of what I'm thinking and experiencing with it. You know, many opuses of Triloquy are born from those, uh, are are, are flowered, I'll I'll say, bud from those those different uh, situations. Um, I I had planned on asking you about one of my, um, you know, harebrained schemes at the intersection of classical music and Triloquy and cannabis. I think I'm going to save it because I don't want anyone to steal my idea, but but, but I do want to ask you about some of the uh, peripheral um, research or answers that you found in your work, specifically things like um, uh, bongs and um, and papers and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, do you think that there is some sort of hidden gold mine there? Because what I'm thinking about is when we go back into the orchestra halls, whenever that happens, I'm sure there's going to be branded face masks, branded, you know, things. What if an orchestra branded a pack of rolling papers or, or God forbid, a strain of cannabis? I mean, I, I felt like I would try the New York Philharmonic strain of sativa, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Do you think there's something there? Yes, I think there is. Um, I also on your idea, I hope we can talk about that offline and I do have people yeah, that I will. can connect you to um to to make that happen because I thank you it's great and like I want to help let me know how I can help yeah. um so in terms of these uh you know what uh, I guess paraphernalia um mm-hmm. there's uh the industry right now there's um you know there's some people established companies making rolling papers and making bongs and, and everything and the usually the more paraphernalia side of things the bongs the pipes those are usually more smaller operations local within a state right because you do, those are really i mean pretty obviously mm. for weed and transporting them into other states you could you know maybe get in trouble for um papers are easier because papers you could say oh no no this is for rolling tobacco and so there's a few big companies who are doing that um but I think that in terms of 
the gold mine that's still waiting in cannabis. Um, you know, everyone's looking at the space and saying, oh, wow, like it's, it's grown up and like it's really changed. It is just at the very beginning of changing. Mm. For the next several years, there's going to be rapid change um, as, as new products come out and new brands come out and establish themselves, then the consumers will evolve and have more specific needs and wants. And then you'll need to catch up with that, the new level of consumer. And it's just going to be like an arms race basically between, um, what consumers want and what people are able to provide. And as I mentioned before, there's so many different consumers. They're all, you know, they identify in a number of different ways, politically, religiously, racially, everything, you know, there's so much variation. And for a lot of people, I think that we can agree, consuming cannabis is such a personal thing. You want something that affirms your identity, right? And so if you can, if you can come up with a brand that speaks specifically to a certain group of people, I think that there's, a, you know, there's any number of gold mines waiting. On classical music and cannabis, this is one of my favorite things to think about because back when we used to go to concerts, I would go to maybe two concerts a month or so. And I went to the San Francisco Symphony a lot. I went to the Oakland Symphony quite a bit. Um, and then a few just like local chamber um, concerts. And one of my favorite things to do is to look for high people at intermission because they're there. <laughs> and and it's it's kind of silly to pretend that they're not. I mean, we we're just talking about it. You like a lot of people like to consume uh, cannabis to listen to music and to do that in a giant symphony hall with the lights and the, you know, in the San Francisco, the Davies Symphony Hall, there's this amazing structure that's suspended over the stage for acoustics, but it's just it, this, you know, clear glass with these reflections. It's this beautiful sensory experience to have. Um, I pretty much always would consume um, before the show and I, I would just go out onto the street and consume. Um, but, oh, and another thing, I remember about two years ago, I think, the San Francisco Symphony did a, a show of, you know, where they have the, the movie with the live music, mm -hmm. the orchestra doing the live music. They did Jurassic yeah. Park, um, which is one oh of my, my favorite gosh. movies ever. So I went with my friend and we were sitting like maybe a few rows from the front of like one of the higher balconies. And I remember noticing at intermission, just from getting to, from my seat up, you know, up maybe 10 rows to the exit, I saw two empty edibles packages on the floor. <laughs> just walking up the aisle. So people are doing this. Um, it's yeah. kind of silly to pretend like they're not. Um, I've had a number of ideas for possible uh, cannabis, classical music adjacent businesses. None of them will work right now because there's none of these, you know, social in-person events happening. But um, I think that we, we might be in for a, a really wonderful period of um innovation of social experiences when we're you know back to being able to do that it's got yeah. oh, oh me me i have a question, <laughs> I have a question. okay so you a couple of opuses ago uh you wrote in in response to my statement about like big tobacco being positioned to profit mm -hmm. from the legalization right and you said that was kind of maybe but not quite i was onto something uh, i'm i'm curious about home growers, because I'm a home brewer and I love the pageantry of it all mm -hmm. to make something really special, really good. Yeah. And I think that I would be a pretty decent grower. So do you think that that is going to be an interest industry though? Like, a, like maybe a brew and grow store, you know, where you can get mm -hmm. stuff for both. 
I think that's a great idea. I'm sure there's a, a really big overlap between the yeah people who are home brewers and people who are home growers, right? It's that idea of spending um, time and investing yourself in you know crafting something that's unique to you that you care about. Like I think yeah. that's a, I think that's a great idea. I don't know one brewer that doesn't smoke some weed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope I hope you'll hire me, Scott. I, I would love to work there. Beer and weed. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Molly, uh, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things that I do when I talk uh, to students mainly, but when I do consultation for other organizations is help folks see how so-called classical music can speak to what I often refer to as the bigger picture, bigger conversations about racial and, and gender equity. From your perspective, what can the very unique intersection of cannabis and so-called classical music mean for the world. There are so many gender and especially race conversations within cannabis, the same in classical music. Is there is there a little gray area where a hidden gem um, that's going to help us get over all of these uh, all of these structures? <laughs> is there something there from your perspective? Um. I mean, I wish there was one little point that could get over all of the structures that are standing in the way of this. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I mean, if you look at the history of Western classical music, you look at the history of race in the US, like there isn't one easy answer to any of it, right? It's just, it takes um, sustained committed work to changing anything that's this entrenched. Um, I think that the, I do, though, think that cannabis is a really good example to point to of how attitudes uh, and, and opinions can change really, really rapidly, though. Um, it's something that people have come around on. Um, in, I mean, now I think something like uh, two-thirds of Americans uh, of the general public say that cannabis should be legalized, um, and it's something above 90% for medical cannabis. The two-thirds is just for recreational. So it's something that, um, you know, it, it shows that things can change. And that's another thing I think that is really important to note about the changes that we've seen since COVID. Um, the fact that everything changed basically overnight back mm. in March has shown people that real major change happening quickly is possible. And you know, I, I think that was a big part of why we saw the reaction we did to George Floyd's mur murder, right? We, people are like, wait, like, you know, we can change, you know, we all shut down our lives and stopped everything that we do overnight for something. Why can't we do the same for this? So it's, I think the cannabis is an example of that change does happen. Um, but it's, you know, nothing is going to get fixed without people being engaged and educated about any, any issue and um, applying increased or, you know, sustained pressure to get these changes made. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right now, there is someone who is going to spark up and listen to the December movement of Dasyar right. by Fandy Mendelssohn Hensel. Paint the picture for them as they're listening. What should what, what should they have in mind? Oh my gosh! Well, I, it's a very active movement. It you know? is, and I, so I don't know what what piece what part of it you're thinking of, but I'll tell you what my story is when I'm playing it on the piano. Um, uh, so it starts it in in my vision. It starts in a 
frozen forest at night and there are these little, um, you're, you're outside and it's freezing and the wind is blowing and there are these little forest sprites running around in the bushes and behind the trees and kind of laughing and, you know, giggling at whatever's going on. And, and then you, you make your way back to the, the village and there's a, a church bell tower that tolls and you fall asleep in your home and drift off to sleep. Um, and then there's this kind of transition to this very dreamy, angelic corral. Um, and, and then you wake up and it's Christmas morning and there's these bells ringing um, and the whole village is out, um, socially distanced, of course, but like seeing <laughs> each other. Um, and then there's another awakening at the end of it where the last awakening is clear, is clear as just in a dream and the new one is you and you're here and it's the end of 2020 and you're reflecting on this batshit crazy year and the experiences that you've had and it's it's introspective and it's moving and it's poignant and it's sad but it's also kind of beautiful and you, it, it's overwhelming there's too much to make of it um and that's how it ends for me thank Dr. Molly not only for coming on Triloquy, but for staying on the line after we cut the mics off to talk about one of my harebrained cannabis classical music ideas. So mm. hopefully more of that to come. It's just an idea right now, but as cannabis, as a cannabis appreciator, as you are, Scott, mm -hmm. like I said before we listened to the interview, I think there's an opportunity there. So maybe we can get something together. But in the meantime, brand the, expansion is what the, they call it. Grand expansion. Brand expansion. Oh, brand expansion. Okay. All right. Here's the triloquy. Mama, they don't know it, but that IQ exam was nothing but a white racist test. It don't tell you how smart you are, just how white you are. Shout out once again to the show Good Times and shout out to Michael from Good Times who you heard from there. I love that they paint all of the different colors of blackness, including the people who are really pushing for that liberation and really breaking down structures and critiquing. I think that's a really important quote there. When we talk about the standardized text uh, test, we have to talk about the means to which a person gets to a certain position as far as a job or whatever, especially as a black person. For many black people, we think, and I'm not talking about anyone specific here, but we royal, we think that once we get to a certain position, we get a certain job, we have a certain amount of power and privilege that the problems of racism don't apply to us anymore. Well, Anthony McGill, the principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic, reminded his Facebook feed anyway, the world, that that is not the case. I'm going to read his Facebook status from December 18th. It's a, it's a public status here. Um, it says, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically it says... He walked up to um, the the Rose Building at Lincoln Center to do a recording session. Uh, the person at the back basically 
believed that he was a delivery person. He said, can I help you pick up or delivery? This is the security person out back. Anthony McGill gets into how, you know, it was so upsetting to him and how we have a lot of work to do in the arts and all of that. Item A, with this, you know, my true and real, if I can, if I can be unapologetically honest about this, item A, half of y'all, most of y'all, most of us will never have a position in so-called classical music like Anthony McGill has a principal position in one of the most famous orchestras in the world. Everyone has heard the phrase New York Philharmonic. He has reached this high mountain Mm -hmm. and still has to deal with racism. If he's dealing with it, that means sooner or later, we are all, all of us black and all of us fighting for the racial equity are going to have to deal with that. So I hope people really take this as an example that we all have work to do. This applies to all of us. I don't care if you are that uh, security guard who might be, I, I, he didn't say if this security guard was black, but if you are a black security guard, a black musician, a black hedge fund a banker, a black fast food worker. We all have work to do. Okay. I, I really hope that him laying out and being public about this situation um, taught some folks something because, you know, you can say, oh, well, it wasn't about race. He just didn't see, he had never seen Anthony before, or the security guard could not fathom the most famous orchestra in the world having a black musician. It could also be that. But the thing is, is that he is the only black musician. So, so if you it should is, know him. <laughs> if it is a regular guy at the door, wouldn't he know that? Well, you know. I, I don't want to make assumptions. I, you know, I think it's, I agree with all the points that you're making, but obviously people sit here, will read that and think, well, what could have been the problem? You know, what? We, we should never make assumptions, but we're also never allowed to really identify what's very plain in front of our face that you're we not, have experienced you're not all wrong. of our lives. Right. So there's that. Okay. Right. Right. My, my second point with this, though, is that I hope that we are being very careful to make sure that we are not diminishing non-so-called classical music jobs. So to be mistaken for the delivery, and this is not directed toward Anthony McGill, but I just, you know, just to whoever needs it. Being mistaken for the delivery person because of racism is one thing. Being upset to be mistaken for a delivery person is another thing. I started this whole opus out by shouting out the delivery drivers. We're in the holiday season. Amazon is working double and triple and quadruple time. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who have a lot, and I, I'm I'm not exaggerating. I know a lot of people who have picked up part-time work, sorting boxes over there, you know, 10, 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. This is a very important job. And I think when we're using our most equitable language, our most equitable practices, our most equitable way of thinking, we have to be very careful when we draw a fence from being mistaken for insert job here. That is not my job. Respect the work. Right. Yeah. And respect all the work. Um, So that's that. The other thing that I wanted to quickly note, look, it's the holiday season. It's COVID, Christmas, COVID year. People are broke. People are hungry. People are going to try to get money any way they can. Now, we've all heard of the scheme of the Nigerian prince and X, Y, and Z, you know, all of those dangerous email threads. Well, they're hitting the composers now. I want to shout out Clifton um, Joey uh, Gudry 
uh, on my Facebook, a, a composer, they received a message. So I'll, I'll just read the first couple sentences here. It says the International Contemporary Ensemble, in conjunction with I Care If You Listen's Uneven Measures, has selected you as the first of three recipients of the American Composer Initiative Commission. And it goes on to talk about money and opportunity. International Contemporary Ensemble, ICE is real. Um, I care if you listen, as you know, it's very real, as is the Uneven Measure series in conjunction with the American Composers Forum. So these are people who are read, who understand the arts field, who know who these composers are, uh, these these artists, sound creators, whatever word you want to use, and also know that it's rough out here and folks are going to take whatever gig they can really taking advantage of that. I want to bring this up just to remind everyone to be vigilant. You may not be a composer looking for a commission. You may be someone who just clicks a link in your email, you know, so be careful. I was on the phone about three weeks ago. Someone in India had gotten one of the passwords uh, to one of my internet accounts and I had to go through and change everything It's real out here. Mm -hmm. Um, it's been a rough year. Um, we're just about to the end of it, but stay strong because there's a lot of there's a lot of fuck shit going on, as they say on the streets. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, one, we wanted to end with something light because this is the last opus of Triloquy um, before present opening and and Kwanzaa celebrations and all that. So mm-hmm. did you have any uh, warm warm mess? Are you going to read the night before Christmas for us? Not right now. Okay. <laughs> Not right now. No, but maybe uh, maybe on Christmas Eve or something like that. I don't know. Uh, I know that a lot of people are not looking forward to the holidays anyway because it's tense with family, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason, and a lot of it surrounding politics, especially this year. So, number one, you don't have to do that this year. So that's a little bit of tension relief and if you don't want to go you got a reason right so (laughs) but if you're one of the social folks and you're going to be missing that time with your family or with your friends your social gatherings um take it from a bachelor who has spent like the last eight christmases on his own take this day to yourself i'm serious turn off the phone if you can go on a walk Get back to something that you like to do. Play that instrument. Write. Do your art. Sleep. You know, a lot of people are just finishing up with classes. So this might be a, a marathon nap to catch up on some sleep for some PhD people. The, a few of them that I can think of. Take this day. Take Christmas Day to yourself. This Just this year. Maybe smoke yourself some nice weed since we've been I talking said, about that. I said, take know? some time to yourself. <laughs> oh, 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 uh, oh, tannin bong. Right? <laughs> nice. Um, look, my last little thing is that the listen, you, you know, those of you listening right now, you are my gift. And I know that might sound corny or trite or whatever, but when I think about, and we'll, we'll get into this in the year in review next week, but when I think about this year, when I think about where Triloquy has gone, how Triloquy has become, you know, a large portion of my career, you know, my bread and butter and, and all that sort of thing, 
none of it will be possible without y'all listening. So whether you listen when this comes out, whether you stack them up and save them for your road trip, you know, whether you break it up, it takes you a week to listen to one opus. You know, I really don't care. What what I care about is, you know, the support that I've gotten um, from each and every one of you. And it really means everything to me. So thank you so much. I am most grateful to you. You are my gift. If I could um, be Santa Claus and come to, you know, all whatever thousand of your homes and and drop something off, drop a joint off for you, I would. I don't have uh, magical powers, at least not until tomorrow. So <laughs> maybe that'll be it. <laughs> so, again, this was recorded on Sunday the 20th. If, if something big happens between now and Wednesday, if one of the orchestras does something crazy, we'll get to it next week. Merry Christmas. I hope you had a happy Hanukkah if you uh, participate in that. Um, happy Kwanzaa that's coming up and um happy 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 joy joy <laughs>